Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Welcome back from that six-week break. It's time to begin Season 8 of Triple Threat Theater with Episode number 85, A Sheep in Wolf's Clothing. My name is Ryan Miller. And I'm Joe Daxberger. Welcome back, Dex. Welcome back, Milzy. <laughs> How was your break that didn't really happen because oh, we're recording yeah. this in advance? <laughs> just, just thinking ahead. It's going to be magical. <laughs> Can't wait. Only thing that would have made it better is coming back to more werewolf movies. Mm. But that is not the case tonight. No, it's all sheep movies tonight. Mm, your favorite. <laughs> Uh, Black Sheep, Black Sheep, and Silence of the Lambs. Oh, I wasn't expecting you to have such an answer. At the right I, I mean, I like in it. the moment when I said that, I was like, could I name three? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Encyclopedic knowledge of movies. Actually, isn't there a horror movie from like a year or two ago called Lamb? It's like an A24 oh, style. I was just going to say like an A24 movie that you would hate to the core. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, yeah, we could yeah. do that. The horror comedy Black Sheep and Silence of the Lambs. Holy shit. That means people, this is how it happens sometimes. <laughs> That's all it takes. This is all, there's, nothing, there's nothing really going on that intricate. <laughs> yeah, but the actual theme for this episode is not quite so cut and dry. No, sir. So a wolf in sheep's clothing is someone dangerous or treacherous who's pretending to be, you know, a nice, normal person to get the better of you. So a sheep in wolf's clothing is, you know, a a cuddly, nice, normal person putting it out into the world that they're a bad guy. Mm-hmm. That's my idea anyway. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I came up with this theme and it's basically Stephen King. He's known mostly for horror, but uh, he has written some things that aren't horror. And some of those things have been made into movies. So we are talking three non-horror movies from the King of Horror, Stephen King, including 1986's Stand By Me. Mm -hmm. 1994's The Shawshank Redemption and 1999's The Green Mile. I have so many things to say. There's a lot to say about at least some of these. I have uh, dense notes for one of these movies. <laughs> mm. Well, even just Stephen King in general, because if you think like just your little preamble here and you think like how many books the guys put out, how many books have been turned into movies, mm -hmm. and especially because like guys' subject matter is pretty out there if you think about it. Yep. And I love them for it, you know. I've never read a Stephen King book i have read a stephen king novella i've seen many movies which uh novella are we talking the langoliers uh yes i've seen the tv miniseries <laughs> that i loved that tv miniseries when i was younger mm -hmm. and so my aunt who used to live next door my great aunt she uh was a stephen king fan and had the book i think it's called four past midnight and it was four like horror novellas 
and uh, I borrowed it from her and read The Langoliers because I liked it. I never read the other three, but I think that's the only Stephen King I've ever actually read. Yeah. Okay. I have, like, you know, grand ideas of checking some things out. I've always wanted to read The Stand for some reason. Mm. Um, you hate yourself. <laughs> I mean, that book fucking huge? The, the uh, yeah, TV miniseries was eight hours long. Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably like 2,000 pages or something. It's like, of course, that'd be the one I'd pick, but... yeah. I don't know, that uh, story kind of interests me. But regardless, seen a ton of Stephen King movies, and I've seen all three of these movies beforehand. I had not seen all three of these before. Uh, this, oh? this was my first time watching The Green Mile. Interesting. I would have never guessed that. <laughs> I had seen little droplets of that movie before. Wow, never would have guessed that for some reason. I'm pretty sure my the movie came out not super long before my grandmother on my mother's side died, but I'm pretty sure she had it on VHS and I might have seen parts of it at her house. Mm-hmm. But um, never saw the whole thing. I just when I was younger, like when it came out, like in 1999, it, it like for some reason it just like didn't interest me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know a lot about it. Like it was like, oh, some guy can bring mice back to life or something. <laughs> like I didn't really know anything about it, and it's something I've been wanting to catch up with for years now, but just hadn't gotten around to. Thank God you got a podcast. Yeah. So knock that one off the old list. I had seen Shawshank Redemption many times, and I think this was probably my second time seeing Stand by Me. I've seen uh, Stand by Me quite a bit. I feel like it was. Not one of like the heavy rotation movies in the Daxberger household back in the day, but I definitely had seen it a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, and going back pretty far because it's like some stuff of it that just, it's probably been a decade since I've seen it, but some of his stuff is just so vivid when I was rewatching. Um, Shawshank, I did not see like around the time it came out. I feel like it was. A decent amount of time later, but um, have subsequently watched that multiple, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And Green Mile I saw in the theater, oh. and then never again. Mm. So, second watch for me on that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, a uh, lot, of, lot of movies out there made by, made about his, uh, made based on his writings. Um, mm-hmm. The vast majority of them are horror uh, and I gotta be honest, I, I would not really, for the most part, count the movies based on his stuff among, like, my favorite horror movies. Same. I really like it, the the newer ones. I like the TV movie version a lot, actually, as well. That's another one that I watched a lot when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But, like, that would probably, like, either incarnation of that would probably be... Along with maybe the Langoliers, which I haven't seen in a while, like my favorite Stephen King adaptations in the horror realm. Mm-hmm. But like, I like Cujo. It's not like my favorite thing in the world. Um, I remember liking, I think it's 1908 or whatever it's called. The, it's like the haunted hotel room. Jeez, um, I mean, I've never, never really been a big fan of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I, I want to watch the made for TV version that Mick Garris directed. And I even wrote to Mick Garris on Twitter to ask him if there was a way to see it. And he was like, not right now, unless you want to buy like a DVD copy on Amazon for far too much money. Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. 
the made for tv remake yeah yeah stephen king never liked the uh adaptation that uh stanley kubrick did I was going to say, because isn't it like vastly different than the book? From what I understand, I haven't read the book, so I don't really yeah. know. But um, yeah, so Stephen King actually adapted the novel himself for the TV version. And then Mick Garris, who's collaborated with Stephen King many times and their friends, directed it. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a two-night, two-part miniseries thing. And there are people who say that it's better. Uh, apparently, it's obviously more... Uh, faithful adaptation but then of course there's people who are like blasphemy stanley kubrick is the best uh, but i haven't seen it would like to the uh the remake um gosh carrie is a movie again like cujo where i like it it's not like my favorite thing in the world children of the corn i don't really remember liking all that much but it's been a while never read it clearly because i haven't read any but um i love christine yeah i do like christine that's that's up there that- for me i guess that could be like probably my favorite, even over it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, like I've seen um, Pet Cemeteries. Not a big fan of those. Love the premise, yeah. but don't think the original or the remake really did the premise justice. Yeah, I don't personally. remember thinking too highly of them either. I mean, I'd have to like look at a list because there's so many. There's what did lot. we watch for the show? Um, well, we've watched. Um, Fucking, What's the crazy car one? Yeah, where the, the vehicles come. Uh, maximum Overdrive. Yeah. We watched it on the second ever episode, the uh, the the movie right. remake. Of course. Um, gosh, I think there's an... Oh, uh, we watched Christine. We did? Uh, Yeah, three killer car movies. Christine, The Car, and... Oh, yeah. What was the other one? Oh, it was Maximum Overdrive. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I like Christine. I watch every year at Halloween, so I kind of forgot that was a triple threat as well. But yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we're hanging with uh, Mr. King here. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have you. So Shawshank Redemption. I'll just say there's a lot to say about that when we get when we get to it. Mm-hmm. Just from like its journey to the screen and what happened after. Uh, it hit the screen. Um, I don't remember exactly when I saw that one, but it was probably around like the late nineties, early two thousands. I know I had seen it already by the time I met Brian in high school because, uh, him and I are both big fans of it and have watched it many times. But, um, is that like a favorite of yours or like i i know you said you you it took you a while to see it but now you've seen it many times like it has this stigma of being like a modern classic if you want if you can call the mid 90s modern at this point may probably yeah um yeah i think like whatever my top 10 20 100 however that shakes out i mean shawshank is certainly in that top 100 top 50 I love it. I think I mean, we'll talk more, but like, yeah. you know, as far as perfect movies, um, I feel like I could have Shawshank in that conversation. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of feel the same, um, which I feel. And I feel like that's a movie I've seen pop up on like, Oh, it's on people's favorite movies. Yeah, best like movies of all list. time. <laughs> like number one, even like mm-hmm. as it should be. So yeah, I think it's, I'd be hard pressed to ever even meet a person that doesn't like it. But yeah, I'm sure they're they're out there. People oh, of course, that, people that just like hate good things. But yeah, 
joyless bastards. Yes. Yeah. On the whole, I don't think that describes us, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out as we go through, mm. because I think all three of these movies are pretty highly regarded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to dive into movie number one? Yes, kick it off. Dead right. people. <laughs> From 1986, we have Stand By Me. Jesus Christ, Billy, we got to do something. Why? Who cares? We saw him. So? It ain't nothing to us. The kid's dead, so it ain't nothing to him neither. And who gives a shit if they ever find him? I don't. What is that kid they're talking about on the radio? Brocker, or Brower, or Flowers, whatever his name is. The train must have hit him. Big fucking deal. We had all followed the Ray Brower story very closely because he was a kid our age. Three days before, he had gone out to pick blueberries, and nobody'd seen him since. I think we should tell the cops. Yeah, don't go squawking to the cops after you boosted a car, you idiot. They're gonna wanna know how the hell we got way out on Back Holler Road. Now they know we don't got no car. It's best we just keep our mouths shut and then they can't touch us. Look, we could, we could make an ominous call. <sighs> they trace those calls, stupid. I seen it on Highway Patrol and on Dragnet. Yeah, right. I just wish we never boosted that goddamn Dodge. I wish Ace had been with us. Could have told the cops who was in his car. Well, he wasn't. We're gonna tell him? We're not gonna tell nobody. Nobody, never. You take me. A classic coming-of-age tale. <laughs> uh, based on the 1982 novella The Body by Stephen King. It's funny, all three of these are not based on novels, but novellas, like short, oh. shorter stories. Mm-hmm. What makes something a novella? Uh, I think... Is it strictly page count? Yeah, I think so. Like a, a full-blown novel. Like, I don't know exact numbers, but like if if you were to ask me, I would say a full-blown novel probably has to be like... 200 250 pages or something like that Mm -hmm. and then a short story you know there's probably broad definitions for that but i'm thinking like 50 pages or less even 50 sounds like a lot for a quote-unquote short story but i i didn't bother looking up like how many pages any of these are but i think i got the impression that they tend to be like between 100 and 150 pages or something like that maybe the mist is a novella too right yeah i believe so i don't think that's a full novel okay Okay. And like I said, the Langoliers was one. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think uh, Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption, I think, are both. So he does a lot of these story collections. Like I said, the one that the Langoliers is in is called Four Past Midnight, and it's four uh, stories. Mm-hmm. I didn't think to write this down, but I believe the body, which Stand By Me is based on, and Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which Shawshank Redemption is based on, I think they're out of the same book, maybe called Seasons or something like that. Mm. And it's like each story is based is like inspired by a season of the year. And the express purpose behind that book was to do non-horror stuff. So gotcha. Just I thought that was interesting. All three novellas. Um, Mm. The body. Yeah. Uh, Directed by Rob Reiner. Mostly known for comedy, although now that I say that, later on in his career, he did, not even later on, but like, he started out with like, This is Spinal Tap and Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally, and then he ended up making Misery, which is another Stephen King adaptation, Uh, which is not funny, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, A Few Good Men, which is a great drama as well, but uh, yeah, Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell go to see themselves a corpse. I mean, quite the cast of youngins. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I like I said, I've seen this so many times, but I feel like it's this one certainly is a classic. I mean, want to see a dead body is like one of those iconic phrases for sure. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many times I've heard that in my time, but uh, I don't Are think you you're serious? On that one. Yeah, want to really? see a dead body? Oh. Yeah, like yeah, I feel like that's just, that's just like a part of the pop culture lexicon. Maybe the circles really... you run in out there. And... Wow, that's actually. Massachusetts, but <laughs> that that could be fairly accurate as well. But yeah, so I got the impression just like watching. I watched a special feature on. I do have this on Blu-ray. Um, watched a special feature about it, and people talked very fondly of it. And reading about it online, it definitely feels like a lot of people consider this like a classic and like a great coming-of-age movie from their youth or whatever. And I definitely see that. Um, I do wonder because I probably didn't see this movie until that period i've talked about many times around like 2010 ish when i was like banging out a movie a day with uh netflix discs Mm -hmm. in the mail catching up Mm -hmm. with things that i had never seen and um so it came pretty late to me and i like the movie but similar to something like the goonies while i can appreciate it it's not like this bona fide classic to me gotcha but uh, i definitely like the cut of its jib I mean, I think not terribly long ago we talked about uh, the Sandlot, and I feel like excluding the dead body, it falls kind of in that same ballpark. <laughs> no pun intended. Oh, he's got away with words, this kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even like at, during the um, since I just rewatched uh, the Sandlot not long ago for the show, I was reminded of it a lot when they're at the junkyard, and there's like you know the kind of the stories we've heard about the junkyard dog and then you finally see it and it's Mm -hmm. like not Mm -hmm. intimidating at all but and they're like jumping over the fence to get away from it and stuff and i was very much like oh i wonder if the people who made the sandlot were inspired by this Mm. but uh, yeah they're in that same realm you know it's a coming of age a group of boys who are friends like during the summer on an adventure of sorts and you know that Mm -hmm. definitely appeals to me just in a void yeah it's not necessarily even like Certainly not like a kids movie because, you know, there's some. Yeah, it's rated R, I think. Yeah. Oh, it is. And there's a ton of spicy language in this one. (laughs) Um, It is rated R. I mean, aforementioned dead bodies, guns, you know, our running trains, the whole deal. Leeches. The the (laughs) leeches has stuck with me my whole life from that scene of being like. I don't know. I don't even like ponds or lakes, but, but part of it in the psyche could be from. The leech scene from Stand By Me. So, you ever had a leech on you? No, I do. No, I'd have to burn my whole body. I don't <laughs> want to think about that. Yeah, when I was pretty young, I forget where we were. There's like, there's like some kind of. I'm sure, there's a swamp out back beside your house <laughs> or something. There's some like mountainous regions not super far from me. Uh, the names of which I'm forgetting all of them. But uh, like when I was a kid, it was pretty typical. For us, like during the summer, my parents and my sister and I to like pack up a picnic lunch, throw some blankets and towels and bathing suits in the car and then like drive up into the mountains and like there'd be waterfalls and into like little pools and like tons of people around like picnicking and just hanging out. And I'm pretty sure I got a leech at some oh. point there. Oof. I ended up starting a forest fire. Anyway. <laughs> Look, I wasn't Will Wheaton in this movie because I would have been firing off rounds into that water mill. <laughs> <laughs> no leeches for me. That's a. That's I a, mean, I'm not a fan of leeches either. <laughs> I'm not trying to give that impression, but 
No, of course. I just mean like that's how it that stuck with me for so long with these damn leeches. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I mean there's also the the group of older boys in the movie too that there's some uh, heavy hitters there Kiefer Sutherland. Mhm. Uh primarily, but um, I'll tell you something I had completely forgotten from the last time I watched it is that John Cusack is in this movie. Mm. I had no yeah. recollection that he was in Same. there that he played the older brother. Totally. I mean, I didn't remember the whole subplot about the older brother having died and everything. Like right. I said, I've only seen this once, and it was probably going on 15 years ago. Uh, same here. Like, some of those little intricacies for me, because it's been so long since I've watched it. But, again, I think there's a bunch of iconic things from this. The train scene, leeches, the the whole deal. So I think this is uh, it's a good time. I mean, watching it now, I mean, I, it doesn't... Uh, it's almost like I could see this being like a novella. There's really not much to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not like vapid or anything either, because like the boys definitely get into some, you know, like heavier conversation. I mean, yeah, overall, I dig this one. I think it's uh, it is a good time. It's well made. You know, it's a little bit a bit poignant. Mm-hmm. I forget even that. Uh, Dick Dreyfus is even, you know, bookending the thing. I go completely forgot that yeah as as had i mm-hmm. i like that he's uh he's the narrator through it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it's just you know even it being like a period piece from like a you know a time before and it's got the voiceover it has like a wonder years kind of vibe oh yeah there's just something about those kind of stories of like it it's so weird i wish there was a term for it it feels like something that there's probably like the Japanese have like terms for things that we don't hear. That's true. Yes. And I feel like there's probably a Japanese term for this that I don't know, but I've many times said that I, I love that feeling in a movie when it makes you feel nostalgia for an era that you didn't even experience. Shit. We should come up with that like now or soon. So we can maybe slap it on a t-shirt and start <laughs> getting some merch out there in season eight. Yeah, may have to workshop it a bit because I'm not sure if I can come up with something off the top of my head as fast okay. as I did those uh, sheep movies. But... I mean, I was gonna say, <laughs> I don't want to hold you. You've already you've already uh, hit a couple out of the park. I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to ruin your streak now. But yes, we'll table that one. But yeah, I mean, the Sandlot does the same thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I I like that about it. It's just like I don't know. Somehow it gives you the warm fuzzies. Oh yeah, no, it does a good job of that. No, it's like barely any like scenes like in town or anything like so much of it is out in the woods on the tracks and everything mm-hmm. still just makes you feel yeah i could see like yearning for yesteryear even though you <laughs> never even had anything to do with it yourself yeah cory feldman classic cory feldman he's good mm-hmm. in this uh river phoenix as kind of the oddly wise one of the group yeah i think he's probably my favorite yeah Performance-wise. I like like him in this. Uh, Jerry O'Connell as kind of the comic relief. And I just... I I look at him the whole movie. I'm like staring into his face and I feel like I can't even tell that it's him. Like, I know it's him. No. The other three, absolutely. But him, it's just... Even Will Wheaton, who I'm like the least familiar with of all of them. Because, like, I've never been a Star Trek guy. I know he plays... Wesley Crusher in some version of Star Trek and yep. he's known these days for being kind of like a famous nerd kind of like Chris Hardwick and he has like that tabletop gaming 
right. series where he like explains to people how to play board games and he's like he's like famous for playing dungeons and dragons on the internet with people and whatnot mm-hmm. but like i'm not super familiar with him so i don't connect the dots between like young will wheaton and modern will wheaton either personally he'd like but i mean cory feldman you only like uh, you only really know him as young cory feldman because he doesn't really have a career now that he's older uh no offense <laughs> Right, and then River Phoenix obviously didn't make it to the point where you know mm-hmm. he would be recognizable today, but right, but at least for like for the time, even they were recognizable as them. Where Cherry O'Connell to me just doesn't even look like him, yeah, at all. It's pretty wild, and like I remember him as like the fat one in the group, but like he's not even he's not like huge. He's not like the uh, no like Ham in Sandlot or something. Right, right. <laughs> But yeah, Will Wheaton's goodness in the lead. Um, it's it, this is like the defining thing that I know him from. Like I've seen one or two other things that he was in when he was a kid. Like uh, there's a H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptation of the story "Color Out of Space" called "The Curse" that he's in uh, from when he was a kid. That I watched for the first time a couple of years ago. Okay, movie, but he, mm-hmm. he's he's like the kid lead in that, but. Yeah, this is like the thing that I think of for Will Wheaton. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I, we've already talked about it. I grew up watching Star Trek Next Generation because of my brother, because he watched it and he was the older brother, so he controlled the, <laughs> the remote. One of those. So, I mean, I certainly will kind of always think of him in that, but I feel like he's been this too, because, I mean, again, I've seen this plenty, especially when I was growing up, but. Other than that, I don't know if there's much I've seen him in. Yeah. I feel like he's quick uh, look at his IMDb. It's kind of nothing. He's in The Last Starfighter. He's in Toy Soldiers. Like, a bunch of stuff when he was younger, like into his teens. But then Does a lot of voice work. Yeah. But as an adult, like, he's not like a on-screen yeah. leading yeah, he's just type. Yeah, he's just like famous for being famous at this point. Let me throw this name at you, and I just want Ooh, you to say... I like this already. Say, I, I just want to know, like, what is the movie? Not necessarily first thing that comes to your head, but, like, what is the movie that when you hear this person's name, you think of? Okay. Jerry O'Connell. Ooh, what movie do I think of with Jerry O'Connell? Yeah. Like, when you hear his name, what do you think of? Duh. Isn't he, like, Joe's Apartment or something? Is that the movie you think of? Yeah. Because that's also what I think of. Like, oh, okay. I used to watch that all the time in like uh, in the nineties. I think we like recorded it off of TV or something. <laughs> and I haven't seen it in forever, and I really want to, but it's not on Blu-ray. And I've been wanting to rewatch it for years. But yeah, that is the thing that I think of him from. I'm not even sure I've seen that movie, but that's what I think of him. Well, like, what's a movie you've seen that you? Is there anything that comes to mind of like? That's like, the highest profile Jerry O'Connell appearance in my mind, aside from Stand By Me. I mean, for me, it's it's really, it kind of goes back to that. And then I know he was on that show, uh, was it Sliders, I think, which mm, I yeah. saw a handful of episodes. Um, it's funny. I go Joe's apartment and then Piranha 3D, where he gets his dick bitten off. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I haven't seen him in a ton between those. It's funny, like, just, like, looking, I'm even scrolling his IMDb real quick, but it's, like, he had a small bit part in Jerry Maguire, 
and a small right. bit part in Can't Hardly Wait. Actually, now I remember him in both of those, mm. but to me, those are funny because it's like, oh, it's like Jerry O'Connell like put in there as like a cameo, even though he like wasn't. I was just curious if there was like a movie that he's like one of the stars of that like you had watched a bunch that I hadn't or hadn't no. heard of or something because But if I like zero in on him, like other than this movie <laughs> for whatever reason it's Joe's Joe's apartment. Yeah, like I feel like, you know, he's the lead in Joe's apartment, but that movie is largely forgotten at this point and I imagine I would still enjoy it for what it is, but like I haven't seen it in so long, I can't even say, but like that is like the thing that I think of when I think Jerry O'Connell yeah. before anything else. I mean he He's all over the place on IMDb, but yeah. And then fucking uh, Quato plays uh, Will Wheaton's dad in this. Shit, yeah. <laughs> Total oh, recall. All, all time, all time connection. Yeah. So I got a few details on this one that I thought were kind of interesting. Hit it. So uh, writer is Bruce A. Evans and Reynold, not Reynold, Reynold uh, Gideon contacted Stephen King's agent about the rights to the novella and uh, the agent came back to them with a request for $100,000 and 10% of the gross profits. Evans and Gideon then approached established director, I've never known how to pronounce his name, it's Adrian Lin or Adrian Line, uh, director of such films as Nine and a Half Weeks, to direct the film, which got the attention of Embassy Pictures to produce and Embassy Pictures talked Stephen King's agent down to $50,000 and a smaller percentage of the gross profits. Interesting. But then it turned out that Adrian Lynn wasn't available to begin filming when Embassy wanted to, so Rob Reiner came on board. And at the time, I think he had only... It was early in his directorial career. He was an actor before he was on uh, All in the Family. Oh, yeah. But uh, like This is Spinal Tap and maybe one other movie he had directed before this, I think. And so then, so he came on board, and then days before filming was set to begin, it's crazy how many times weird behind-the-scenes, like, huge deals like this potentially affect, like, major movies. Mm -hmm. Days before filming was set to begin, Embassy Pictures was sold to Columbia Pictures, who immediately planned to cancel the production. Jeez. But... Uh, Norman Lear, one of the co-founders of Embassy, and I think he also was one of the creators or like the producers or showrunners or something on All in the Family. Uh, he he decided he had like had faith in the project and Rob Reiner, so he gave seven and a half million dollars of his own money to the production to keep it going because he had faith in it. And then after the film was completed, this was kind of confusing to me. It didn't have a distributor. Because Embassy had been planning to distribute it, but they have now been sold, so they're not their own entity. They're now owned by Columbia, who seemingly is, like, producing the movie, you know, at not at their own will. <laughs> because somebody basically came along and was like, here's enough money where you kind of can't say no. So since Embassy couldn't distribute it anymore, even though Columbia was the one producing it, they hadn't agreed to distribute it. So the film was finished and had no distributor. <laughs> Jeez. So they took it to Paramount, Universal, and Warner Brothers, who all turned it down. And then they actually showed it to the uh, the head of Columbia Pictures, Guy McElwain. Uh, but he was sick at the time, so they gave him a tape, and he watched it at his home. And he says that because 
his daughters watched it with him since he was at home and they really reacted to it. That's why he decided to distribute the movie. No shit. Yeah. I mean. The one change he asked for was apparently at the time the movie was still called The Body. And he didn't like that title because it made it sound either like something dirty or like a horror movie. It is a horrible name for the story, <laughs> yeah. So. And Rob Reiner suggested Stand By Me, which nobody really liked, but they ended up going with it because it was, quote, the least unpopular op- uh, option. <laughs> okay. Okay. Which makes me wonder, when they were, like, shopping it for distribution and the film was completed, did they already have the score? Because, like, the main score is, like, a play on the song Stand 100%. By Me. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Or it's did like... they add that after they came up with the title? <sighs> I'm curious, but I couldn't find that information. (laughs) I'm surprised that's not like at the forefront of the information, but yeah. Yeah. It is actually a nice little bit of music too that, you know, you start to hear (laughs) when it kicks in and you kind of can It's really funny because that theme plays like from the beginning of the movie and it's like, it's extremely close to Stand By Me, but not exact. And it's like a slowed down like score version of it. Oh yeah. And for the first like eight minutes of the movie- I'm just hearing it in the background and I'm like, in my head, I'm like kind of playing the tune along with it. And I'm like, this is so close to something. What is this song that I'm thinking of? And then all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, oh, it's fucking Stand By Me. It's what the movie's <laughs> called. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but uh, budget on this was $8 million and box office was 52.3. So if you look at it. $8 million budget and homeboy Norman Lear gave them $7.5 million of his own money. He mm-hmm. pretty much paid for the entire film. Yeah. That's nuts. That It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, good on them because he got it back and then some, but. Yeah. Holy shit. But yeah, then $52.3 million in 1986, that's probably pretty damn good. Yeah. For a movie that nobody had faith in except sure. for two people. Sure. I mean, anybody would like that kind of return. Yeah. Stand by me. Mm-hmm. And just to connect it to our show even more, uh, Bruce A. Evans, one of the two writers, also wrote Mr. Brooks. Look at that. Which fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, yes. and he also wrote Cutthroat Island, which we just talked about. <laughs> oh, dip. Yeah. It's weird how these uh, connections Yeah, happen. just the... <laughs> I feel like I should read more books just about screenwriters because they seem like they got the wildest <laughs> stories. Uh, re-listening to one of our older episodes recently, I really want to read um, the guy that directed Barbarella. Uh, he There's a book, like a biography of him or something, or a book about him, and I would really like to read it because he sounded just like a Hollywood horn dog back in the day. Oh. <laughs> I really hope that's the name of the, t- the title Hollywood of the Hollywood horn dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, save that for a future episode <clears throat> done all right uh anything else to say about stand by me yeah let's get drop down and get our shawshank on <laughs> all right from 1994 we have the shawshank redemption mr hadley do you trust your wife oh that's funny you're gonna look funnier sucking my dick with no teeth what I mean is, do you think she'd go behind your back, try to hamstring you? That's it. Step aside, Mert. This fucker's having himself an accident. You'll push him off the roof. Because if you do trust her, there's no reason you can't keep that 35000 What did you say? 35000 35000 All of it. All of it? Every penny. You better 
and start making sense. If you want to keep all that money, give it to your wife. The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. Oh, shit. Tax-free? Tax-free. IRS can't touch one cent. You're that smart banker would kill his wife, aren't you? Why should I believe a smart banker like you? So I can end up in here with you? It's perfectly legal. Go ask the IRS. They'll say the same thing. Actually, I feel stupid telling you this. I'm sure you would have investigated the matter yourself. Yeah, fucking A. I don't need no smart wife-killing banker to tell me where the bear's sitting in the buckwheat. Of course not. But you do need someone to set up the tax-free gift for you, and that'll cost you. A lawyer, for example. Bunch of ball-washing bastards. Right. I suppose I could set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> co-workers? Get him. That's rich, ain't it? I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. That's only my opinion. Sir. What are you, Jimmy, staring at? Back to work! Let's go to work! And that's how it came to pass that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning, drinking icy cold Bohemia-style beer, courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Drink up while it's cold, ladies. The colossal prick even managed to sound magnanimous. We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, he spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. I, I know that the popular opinion, like, it's... I feel like this movie, like early on in like my early days of the internet, I, I used to spend a ton of time on IMDb, just like there was this new, you know, database available to me and I was into movies and it was just like reading trivia and keeping track of like where things are moving on the top 250 list. Like, and at some point the Shawshank Redemption became the top movie on the IMDb top 250 and it's still there. Is it? Yeah. So like, oh, amazing. obviously this movie is important to a lot of people. A lot of people love it. I mean, I watched some of the special features on my Blu-ray and there were so many quotes from just like normal average people saying like this movie got me through a hard time. And Frank Darabont saying like people have come up to me on the street and said this movie saved my life. And mm. like this is my favorite movie of all time and all this stuff. And uh, so I feel like there is this like huge adoration of this movie out there by the mm -hmm. masses. But then I don't know where exactly this comes from, but I feel like there's also like a kind of weird backlash against this movie for people who are like real cinema snobs and look down on it as being like just like sentimental and Ugh, like there's other break. and I, I may be making this up, but that's like the impression that I kind of get. So I feel like this movie is beloved by a lot of people, but there is like this stable of people with dumps in their pants out there. Mm -hmm. who The walking fart noises <laughs> of the world. Yeah. Who like judge it. And, you know, like 
you ask Ugh. me like what are your favorite movies of all time and genre stuff for the most part is immediately going to come to my mind like aliens mm-hmm. and the thing and terminator 2 or whatever but yeah you were saying like this could fall into like a top 50 top 20 or whatever and this is if i really sat and thought about it i i definitely think this movie is up there for me as like an all-time favorite just because i think it's great and just the experience of watching it is always so like richly fulfilling Mm-hmm. It's just I feel like it's just so masterfully put together. I was just gonna say the same thing. Uh, no notes, like don't change a thing because it's. I mean, story, execution, cast, music. Fr- the music is phenomenal. Location. I mean, yeah, there's just like yeah, sets, just everything. There's nothing, nothing I would do different. I feel like it's some of like my favorite. Just offhand thinking, like favorite, like casting too. Not even to say, like, you know, I'm a necessarily a super fan of Tim Robbins or William Sadler. I mean, I love William Sadler and Tim Robbins, but like, just like every role, each pick is just like perfect. I mean, I don't know if this is like the the really like the first real shot of like Clancy Brown as like a complete monster, but he is in this movie and he, but he plays it so perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, like Morgan Freeman is a murderer, but it's like, he, he feels like your friend too, you know, like he's got, he's still got somehow has a heart of gold, even though he's in prison. And yeah, I think it's really smart that they never get into like, you know, uh, Andy Dufresne never asks Red, like, so who'd you kill? <laughs> right. Yep. I I, th- I think that that was smart. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they like, they definitely like humanize people. And like, even like, I've always, ever since whenever I did f- first see this, like, I've always like had like a spine tingling feeling about the sisters, you know, like those guys are like perfectly cast. It's so creepy. Yeah. Mark Rolston, Drake from Aliens is yep. uh, the lead. Totally. Yeah. Boggs, oh yeah, the head of the just sisters, like, just blood curdling. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's like it's a longer movie. Don't care. It doesn't feel long. It's just like I'm wrapped up in it every time I watch it. Yeah, it's just like such a good for anyone. Like this is a must see movie for every person. Yeah, there really is. It's like I don't know. It. <laughs> I I was thinking about this the other day. And I th- I had this thought, and then I was like, is that, like, going too far? But I honestly feel like I feel this way. Like, if you were to ask people, like, what's, like, the best movies ever made or whatever, and you're going to have people who say Citizen Kane. And I've seen Citizen Kane, and Citizen Kane is also an incredibly well-crafted movie, but, like, it's it's not <laughs> on the level of something like Shawshank Redemption for me. And, you know, the I forget which organization, um, like maybe the AFI or British Film Institute or something or or the Sight and Sound poll or whatever, like every however many years they poll like people in the film industry, writers or directors or whatever. And they make their list of like the best movies of all time. And for years and years, it was Citizen Kane. And then a couple of years ago, it was finally upset. And Vertigo is like the new. Like the important mm. people who matter call Vertigo the best movie ever made. And like Vertigo's really good. There's like a lot of great movies by great directors out there. But like I was thinking about this <laughs> in like silly, you know, hypothetical terms. But like if I think 
if aliens landed tomorrow and mm-hmm. they were like, show us a movie. I feel like Shawshank Redemption is the movie I would show <laughs> to aliens who'd never seen a film before. Like, give us a reason not to destroy your planet. Not even that. Your... Like, no, no other <laughs> oh, motivation. Oh, or no, meaning. Just, like... just like what? Like, if you had to pick a movie to represent cinema, mm. like I it like maybe this. sounds like kind of overzealous or something, but I feel like Shawshank Redemption is a really good nominee. <laughs> I'll I'll say it on the show right now, and I don't give a goddamn. There are pretentious people that would tell these aliens like, "Oh, you gotta watch uh, 2001: Space Odyssey or Citizen Kane or something like that." Yeah, I'm right there with you, Mills. I just like to imagine the aliens watching the movie, and at the end, you hear them whispering like, "They know about the space baby." <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's yeah. just like it's like I don't know. It's weird. Like I think. I think for me personally, in my mind, like if someone says fast food, I immediately think of McDonald's. If uh-huh. someone says soda, even though I don't drink Coke myself or cola, I Coke is like the defining soda. Uh-huh. Somebody says candy bar, Snickers comes into my mind. All these things are debatable, but somebody says like movies, cinema, like the uh-huh. best movies. I feel like Shawshank is... <laughs> pops in there for me i'm i'm with you i like it also there may be some day where i might call for like a bonus episode where we just do word association for like a half an hour because i think that could be a fascinating a conversation that could that could be a whole new podcast of just that but all right well speaking of word association not mm. counting the shawshank redemption oh boy name the first movie that comes to your mind for this person Tim Robbins. Um, Jesus Christ, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, Jacob's Ladder, mm. just because we watched it on the show. But yeah, fair. Uh, I think you'll you'll understand when I say what it is. I for was. Me. Um, I I know what you're gonna say, but it <laughs> it came to my mind too, and I forgot the name. Nothing to lose with Mark. <laughs> of course, <Lawrence>. of course. <laughs> that movie I used to <laughs> I, watch. All the fucking time. And needs quick, a Blu-ray release. <laughs> I quickly forgot the name of that, unfortunately. But yes, we have laughed in conversation about that movie to each other because we both enjoy it. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Also, uh, he's got he's got a good turn in um John Cusack movie that I love. Uh, High Fidelity? High Fidelity, mm. yeah. He's like the creepy neighbor. Yeah, I just watched that again recently. Oh, nice. So, When's the last time you saw that movie? Uh, maybe within the last ten years. I really like that movie. I always have. Didn't didn't hold up for me. That's a conversation oh. for another time. But. Ah, <laughs> just to tease you with that one. Okay. Yeah, I feel like he Tim Robbins has you know, like I said, nothing to lose comes to mind for me. I know he's got like weird little cameos and stuff like the Tenacious D movie. Like it feels like he does do a fair amount of comedy stuff and like cameos and things. But as far as like you know, leading roles. Um, Not a ton. Yeah, maybe they're like overshadowed by the Shawshank Redemption or something. But I mean, probably. Just this movie has like so many like little vignettes and things like uh, fucking Brooks when they do his oh. whole story where he gets paroled and he doesn't want to leave. And then it's mm-hmm. just he writes that letter and it's uh, James Whitmore narrating 
just this little, it's like a short film within the movie and he ends up hanging yeah. himself and the Brooks right. was here and everything. And it's just, and then it's like all of a sudden you're back to the regular movie and you're like, Jesus Christ, I would just went on a journey yeah. here. Right. Yeah. Like at some point it hits like, Oh, this is a suicide letter. And then he kills himself. And it's just, yeah. I can, I can almost still remember watching that for the first time and being that particular part, just being, devastated punched in the chest <laughs> yeah yeah similar with uh gill not as like you know emotionally wrecking but like you know all of a sudden like two-thirds of the way through the movie or something like that gill shows up the like kind of young greaser mm-hmm. dude and um it's like a short film about him where he shows up he's quickly ingratiated into the group you know andy helps him take his like tests to get his high school equivalency and then he 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 reveals that he heard something about Andy's past, and then before you know it, he's dead, and it's just like he was there, he's gone, and it's just like, Jesus, yep. that was like another little short film within this movie or something. And it's interesting because it covers such a span of time. I think it's about 20 years that Andy's was, in there. I was just going to say the same thing. Like, it does such a good job of spanning, like, two decades. Yeah, without doing any shit like, uh, you know, screen goes black and it says the year or something, mm-hmm. or the narration mm-hmm. being like, the year was 19... 19- I mean, they, they do <laughs> right. that every now and then. Like, they say, I think Red says in his narration, like, the year was whatever when Gil showed up. But it's not like every time there's a time jump, they do that or something. Right, right. Yeah, it just... It's, it's so well done. And, like... Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised. Like, I never really thought about it, but Frank Darabont, who directed this and also directed The Green Mile, I think he has only directed, like, five movies. Really? Yeah, he did. I think, like, so he did a made-for-TV movie called Buried Alive, and he's done, like, one or two short films early in his career. But this, I'm pretty sure, was his first theatrical feature. And Jesus Christ, it's amazing. Um, it is. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. Uh, Shawshank, Green Mile, The Majestic, the Maj- right? The Majestic. Yeah, with Jim Carrey, and The Shield, and the rest was TV. Well, The Mist. I'm sorry, The Mist. He did a direct a, to episode of The Shield. The yeah, Mist. and he did like that miniseries about like gangsters or whatever, uh, Mob City Mob or something C- like Mob that. Mob City. And you know, he like produced and and directed some of Walking Dead and whatever, but yeah, feature films he's done almost none. Mm-hmm. And um when I was it's just crazy to think that somebody's first like director like his first theatrical film is yeah. this like tight and polished and like well well put together and it's just like there's there's nothing there's like no flaws in it visually or editing wise or anything like that and he said in interviews that i was seeing on some of the the movies uh that we watched for this episode that uh he doesn't like directing it's like really stressful for him and Mm -hmm. he'll only do like but he also he he's a writer as well he's written things like a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors oh but hell yeah he uh he kind of explained it that like when you when he he feels like when he writes something he's like putting a lot of himself into it and it's hard to then hand it off to somebody else to turn it into potentially something different than what he imagined Mm -hmm. but he also doesn't like directing that much even though he's obviously very good at it because he it's like very stressful for him and he's like a perfectionist but like when he writes something that he really loves and is invested in, he feels like he has to direct it himself. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, he's like, 
I mean, I think everyone kind of credits him with getting The Walking Dead on TV, and he only directed one episode. Yeah. He was, like, involved a lot in the production and stuff in the first, like, two seasons or something. And then there, I don't know all the details of it, but there was, like, you know, he was, like, let go Uh, of the show and then, like, sued him and made a bunch of money off it or something. But whatever, like. Right. But. I just mean more to your statement about the directing. Like, yeah, he was instrumental in that show for years. It only directed one episode. Mm -hmm. And it's also just crazy to think he's directed five films. Three of them are Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> Two mm-hmm. of them are prison movies. <laughs> yeah, right. I know that's he did those back to back, but they were five years apart. Yeah, and I don't remember if I've seen the Majestic or not, but uh, I would really like to go give that a look now because I feel like I've never given that oh. movie much thought. Jeez, I don't even remember this being a movie. Yeah, it's like it. I I know very little about it, but it's like Jim Carrey gets. Uh, um, he's like hit on the head or he's in a car accident or something. He loses his memory, I think. And he's like in this small town and then he ends up like running a movie theater or being a projectionist at an old timey movie theater or so- something along those lines. I could be completely off, but that's what I think that movie's about. Uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, could just suck the dick of the Shawshank Redemption of course. forever, but I, mean, uh, I have out. a fair amount of details about this oh. movie, so I'm just going to dive into my extensive notes here. And this is largely like uh, summarized from uh, Wikipedia. Hit it. So, based on the 1982 novella Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which just reads funny to me by Stephen King. Yeah, terrible name. <laughs> Uh, so I had heard this story before, but I think it's really cool. Stephen King, he at least used to, I don't know if he does anymore. It would probably get taken advantage of way too much if he still did it. But once upon a time as like a, to like help encourage young filmmakers, like young up and coming filmmakers and film students and things, he had this like unpublicized thing that he would do where if like a, a young director approached him and wanted to uh, adapt one of his stories, he would sell them the rights to any of his novellas, his non-feature-length like books, mm-hmm. for $1. Mm. And I think that part of the stipulation was, like, I'm allowing you to make this thing as an exercise, but like you're not allowed to like sell it to a studio or, like, really profit off of it it's more of just like i'm i'm helping you like giving you a story to you know do your thing with or whatever so frank darabont did that uh when he was a young filmmaker uh bought the rights for one dollar from stephen king to make a short film based on the story the woman in the room and stephen king was very impressed by it a couple years later uh frank darabont got his first true writing credit for writing a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors which in my opinion is the best one of the series and after that he returned to stephen king and offered him a check for five thousand dollars for the rights to adapt his novella rita hayworth and shawshank redemption uh, stephen king was unconvinced that the story could be turned into a feature film but accepted the check because he was so impressed with Frank Darabont's gumption and he never cashed the check. And years later he framed it and gave it to Frank Darabont as a gift, along with a note that read in case you ever need bail money, love Steve. 
Jesus. Just an awesome little story. Seriously. Imagine having that hanging in your room, in your house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Frank Darabont's script for the Shawshank Redemption was read by Castle Rock Entertainment producer Liz Glotzer. Castle Rock being A, named after uh, like the town or whatever in Stand By Stand Me. Stand By Me. Yep. And the studio owned and run by Rob Reiner. Oh, gotcha. So his script was read by Castle Rock Entertainment producer Liz Glotzer, who allegedly threatened to quit if Castle Rock didn't produce the film because she loved the script so much. Rob Reiner, who was in charge of Castle Rock, offered Frank Darabont between two and three million dollars to buy the script from him and let him direct it. But like we already talked about, the material was like so close to Frank Darabont that even though he was like a young guy who had never made a feature film before he stuck to his guns and was like no i want to be the one to direct it so instead rob reiner acted as frank darabont's mentor on the film and because he liked the script so much he gave him a 25 million dollar budget for a first-time director to make a like a prison drama (laughs) when rob reiner wanted to direct the movie he imagined the leads as tom cruise playing andy and harrison ford playing red okay and in the original story, Red is a white Irish dude. So All right. it makes a little more sense. <laughs> so there's a gag in there about the yep. about that. About him movie. being Irish. Like uh-huh. Uh Brad Pitt was originally cast to play Gil Bellows, the young like greaser mm-hmm. inmate, mm-hmm. but ended up dropping out to make Thelma and Louise instead. Interesting. And Bob Gunton, who played the warden, began the film wearing a wig until his real hair grew back because he had just finished filming Demolition Man for which his head was shaved. Yes. What a one-two punch. (laughs) Demolition Man and the Shawshank Redemption. He's so good. Uh, So, Shawshank Redemption came out in theaters in 1994 and it was in theaters for 10 weeks before they pulled it and it only made $16 million. Stop. Off of its $25 million budget. No, it was a flop? Yes. (laughs) Uh, this has been attributed by many people to things such as competition from popular films like Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, which were out at the same time, a lack of interest in prison films at the time, a lack of female stars, a bleak advertising campaign, and a confusing and forgettable title. Because if you don't know the movie, the Shawshank Redemption really means nothing, and in some of those special features, everybody, including Frank Darabont and Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, had stories about, yeah, people will come up to me on the street and be like, oh, you're in that shink shank uh, reduction. I love that movie. <laughs> oh, geez. So. This is blowing my mind. I would have never guessed this. <laughs> yeah. But the movie was so good that it was recognized by the Academy and got seven Academy Award nominations. Uh, I, Damn. I didn't think to write it down, but I think it might have gotten like one of them, uh, like mm-hmm. one, one of them. But because it got so many nominations and so many people didn't even know what the movie was, it got a re-release, which then brought the worldwide box office total to $73.3 million after uh, the re-release. Okay. I mean, that's... Still not a ton, and I think more than half of that was from overseas, so I still think in the U.S. it only made like $30 million. The Academy Award nominations and strong word of mouth also led to it becoming the seventh most rented VHS of 1995. I was going to say, this is like the perfect time for that kind of statistic to come into effect. (laughs) For sure. Video sales also earned an estimated $80 million. Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. Turner Broadcasting System acquired Castle Rock Entertainment in 1993 and began regularly airing the film on TNT in 1997, with television airings accruing record-breaking numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2013, it was recorded as airing more times across 15 basic cable networks than any other movie except for Take a Wild Stab in the Dark. Oh, jeez. You'll never get it, but Take a Wild Stab (laughs) in the Dark. What's like a super mainstream movie from the 90s? I don't even know. Thelma and Louise? (laughs) Miss Doubtfire. Oh, jeez. Miss Doubtfire, the only movie that played more times on cable in 2013 than The Shawshank Redemption. Wild. And the film uh, ranked in the top 15% of all movies by male viewers aged 18 to 49. In 2014, executives at Turner Broadcasting's parent company, Warner Brothers, cited the movie, which was originally a flop, as one of the highest valued assets in the studio's $1.5 billion library of content. Jeez. Also in 2014, Bob Gunton, who played the warden, said in an interview that by its 10th anniversary in 2004, he was earning yearly six-figure residuals from the movie, which is unusually high for a film so many years after its release. But that's because it became like a seminal it was pretty much playing somewhere on cable at all all times. (laughs) It's just what a fucking Cinderella story that is. Totally. And now it's considered to be one of the best movies ever made. (laughs) That gives me chills. Just think of what a, yeah, I I knew some of that. Like I knew the movie wasn't a huge success when it first came out, but yeah, reading all those details, I was just like, Holy shit. That was complete news to me. I would have, if you would ask me before and I would have said like, Oh, this made a hundred million easy. (laughs) Yeah, no, complete flop. Like, if it wasn't for the Academy Awards nominating it, like, that was the thing. Like, I was reading people saying that they never heard of the movie, but when the Academy Awards happened in 1995, and, like, every other award, this movie that they'd never heard of was being named, they were like, I gotta see this thing. It's crazy to think, because I do this every year and, like, bitch about some Best Picture nominee that I've never heard of and have never watched. And to think that <laughs> could be the next Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Redemption was one of those, is just, it blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, the tree that Andy buried the note to red under became a tourist attraction, drawing thousands of visitors Ooh. annually until it was knocked down by strong winds in 2016. Damn. Its remains were turned into official Shawshank Redemption memorabilia, including rock hammer handles and refrigerator magnets. That's kind of fly, actually. <laughs> if somebody wanted to get me like a really baller present. <laughs> a rock a hammer rock made hammer out of the tree from Shawshank? Made out of the actual tree. I'd, yeah. I, I would enjoy that. <laughs> uh, the Mansfield Reformatory Prison in Ohio, which was used for the exterior shots and some interiors, was to be torn down after the production, but a group of Shawshank Redemption enthusiasts purchased the building for $1, and now it is owned and maintained as a historical landmark. As of 2019, the attraction was estimated to earn approximately $15 million in revenue annually, and as a tourist destination, brings over $3 million to the local economy every year. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they have that just adds to a good story. They have like, you know, restaurants in town have like food named after the movie and they have like these uh nature walk things where you go to different locations from the film and all this stuff. 
it's like huge there. I mean, Mills, when we take this show on the road, you know, to uh, we're like going to the go prison to, in Ohio. We're gonna check out the prison in Ohio. We're gonna go to that uh, Phantom of the Paradise, <laughs> Phantom, Parad- Phantom Con, or whatever it's called in Canada. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's gonna be a good time. Uh, in 2015. The Shawshank Redemption was chosen by the Library of Congress to be preserved in the National National Film Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I think they choose two or four movies a year to go in there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like, Pulp Fiction's in there. There's a, there's a ton of great movies. Does this have a baller Blu-ray release? I have... Do you remember Blu-ray books or Digibooks, as they were once called? No. Imagine a little hardcover book the size of a Blu-ray case. Okay. That doesn't snap shut or anything. It just like opens up. It's it's made out of the same thing like a hardcover book is made out of. And when you open it up, on the right hand side of the inside of the case is like a Blu-ray that snaps into like a little plastic thing. And on the left side, taped to or like glued to the inside cover is an actual book with like facts and stuff about the movie. I'm not entirely sure. You're being truthful because I've never heard of this. I have several of them uh, like in the early days. So this was a Warner Brothers thing um, like Warner Brothers had a whole series of these. And in the early days of my Blu-ray collecting, I was like in love with these things. So I have like 15 of them. They did one for the Matrix. They did one for Taxi Driver. I what? think uh, there's a they don't make them anymore. And nowadays that I have, since I have like 2000 movies and they kind of stick out like a sore thumb among all the regular Blu-ray cases, I kind of am not as crazy about them anymore, but I have the Shawshank Redemption Blu-ray book. Brian was a big fan of them as well back in the day. You can ask him. He'll back me up here. I'm looking. They actually look kind of cool. Yeah. They're nice for what they are, you know. Uh, if I like, if I took them all out of alphabetical order and just like s- put them all on the shelf together, they'd probably look pretty cool. But I'm too weird for that. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that would never work for you. <laughs> and as I already mentioned, my final note: The Shawshank Redemption has been the number one film on IMDb's user-generated top 250 films of all time list since 2008, when it unseated The Godfather. Dang, that's pretty wild. Shawshank is a baller film. <laughs> It really is. I mean, come on, people. Sometimes we watch absolute dog shit on this show, but <laughs> sometimes we also watch the best movies ever made. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Shawshank? Shawshank. Green Mile? Now, now some Green Mile. <laughs> All right. Moving on to our third and final film. From 1999, we have The Green Mile. On your feet. Come on, two. You prayed enough for one day. Get to my feet. Walk in the mile. Walk in the mile. Walk in the mile. Walk in the green mile. Walk in the mile. Walking in the mile. Setting down now. Setting down. Taking a seat in old Sparky. What do I do? Watch and learn. Watch and learn. <laughs> Getting strapped, getting clamped, getting wired. All right, getting all electrode. 
Hold on one. But hold on one means I turn the generator up full. You'll see the lights go bright in the after prison. All in bitter book. You've been condemned to die by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. You have anything to say before your sentence is carried out? Yeah. I want a fried chicken dinner with gravy on the taters, and I want to shit in your hat. I got to have Mae West sit on my face, cause I'm one horny motherfucker. Quiet, shut up, shut up. Sorry, boss. Two, one more remark like that, I'll have Van Hay rolled on two for real. And I'll have one less crazy old trustee in the world. It was pretty funny. That's why I don't like it. We'll be doing this for real tomorrow night. I don't want anybody remembering some stupid joke like that getting going again. You ever try not to laugh in church when something funny gets stuck in your head? It's the same goddamn thing. Can I just say quickly, too, like, what a jump in time from 94 to 99 feels like decades apart. and It's only five years. Just with the, the lexicon and the, just the world, I feel like. Yeah. I would have guessed that uh, Green Mile was newer than that. I would have, I would have guessed, that, like apropos of nothing, that it was like 2005 for some reason mm. in my mind. But interesting, Mills. This was your first first watch, mm-hmm. which we don't get a lot of on the show. So <laughs> not ready. of like oh. mainstream, well known movies. Anyway, I'm listening. Hit me. Yeah. So, like I said early in the show, I knew that. Michael Clark Duncan had like magic powers and this was a drama. I knew that Tom Hanks was in it and I couldn't have told you his name, but I knew Michael Jeter was in it. I remember him from the TV show coach. He's the guy who plays uh, like the dude who is like Mr. Jangles is his pet in the movie. Uh, Mr. Jangles, gotcha. whatever. Yeah. 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 He's just got like a recognizable face. So like, mm-hmm. that's really all I knew. And for, like I said, for probably the first decade of the movie's existence, I just didn't have a lot of interest in it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been wanting to watch it for a while. Finally came up for the show. And, uh, you know, this one's even longer than Shawshank. This movie is a shade over three hours long. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since we've had such a long one. Yeah. But, you know, it's Frank Darabont. He really knows what he's doing. Movies put together incredibly well. It looks really good. Aside from, I mean, it does have some CG with the magic powers and the like, whatever like bugs or ashes that come out of Michael Clark Duncan's mouth. But um, yeah, I'm watching it, and at times it's like a little like, what exactly is this movie? <laughs> you know. But um, to give you an impression of what I thought of the film. I watched it on HBO Max because I didn't own it. And uh, literally the second the movie ended, I was on my phone ordering a Blu-ray copy from Amazon because I wanted to watch the special features. Spectacular. This movie's also fucking great. (laughs) Like, how did Frank Darabont make two movies five years apart based on Stephen King stories that take place in prisons and both of them are fucking amazing? It just, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I, <laughs> I mean, I was like so like pumped to watch this. I mean, again, I saw it in the theater. I remember that there's there's choice bits. I remember I actually completely forgot anything about the mouse 
I mean, it's just, you know, it's such like a Tom Hanks vehicle. I remember that. I really remember liking Michael Clark Duncan. Um, I just remember liking it, but not just remembering a ton about the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. And just to rewatch, it was like such just like a magical experience again. Yeah, it's just, man, it's like, it's one of those movies that it, it more so than the Shawshank Redemption, which I think just like surprises you with how emotional and meaningful the whole thing feels Mm -hmm. this one i feel like it's wearing its earnestness on its sleeve like Mm -hmm. it's pretty corny but it's just so well done that i you just don't care unless you're a cynic (laughs) and like you can't you can't let a movie like this win you over. I mean, there were mm-hmm. little stretches here and there where I was like, I don't know, with like the whole powers and stuff. Like, yeah, it feels like you could almost leave that stuff out of the movie at, at a point. Because uh, until the end, it's like not really important, you know, him having the powers. Well, yeah, it's like they almost they almost don't even make a big deal out of it. Yeah, and there's, like, stretches where Michael Clark Duncan has nothing to do, because until the, like, three points in the movie where he uses his powers, like, the movie's mm-hmm. much more focused on Michael Jeter uh, as Delacroix or um, Sam Rockwell, who I had no idea was in the movie as Wild Bill. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like Michael Clark Duncan feels like a background character until towards the end. And, like... Michael Clark Duncan, you know, he's in Armageddon as like a goofy character. Most of the stuff I had seen him in, like he does a voice in the Green Lantern movie, which might have been his last credit before he died. And Mm. I think he was in uh, the Slammin' Salmon, one of the Super Troopers guys movies and like a bunch of dumb comedies and things. I had no idea he had a performance like this in him. Like, I feel like I only ever saw him in like action movies, like the like daredevil as the Kingpin mm-hmm. or like goofy comedies. Dude, he's phenomenal in this. God, it's like, like it's like, like unbelievable that he's as good as he is in this. Like Tom Hanks is like Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. He's just a great. Yeah. Actor. No surprises so it's like, there. Yeah. No surprises there. Dude, Michael Clark Duncan is like, I don't even know like what the word to even say for him in this is like it just like pulls on my heartstrings every time you even like see his face or he's like any of his mannerisms or anything he says like yeah i feel like john coffee is i could even be like a favorite character but because it's just so he's it's so well done he's he does so good as that character i really just love it yeah just you know you get to the end and like they're putting him in the it's like it's it's weird like there's a there's a point in like we were talking in Shawshank Redemption the fact that they never explain the like backstory behind who red killed and i think that that's a good thing and i like that for a lot of that movie it's kind of you don't mm-hmm. know for sure whether andy killed his wife and her lover to end up in prison and you know eventually you find out through like a kind of circumstance like it's kind of a leap in logic that oh this guy happens to show up in the prison and become friends with Andy who also has this like information or whatever not that it's a bad thing it's just like a little bit of a coincidence but like you do find out that Andy was innocent and it feels like you didn't need to like you kind of like red you're on his side no matter what and in this movie like 
every single scene that Michael Clark Duncan is in, like the viewer, I think, is led to feel like, yeah, there's no way he did what they say he did. And you eventually do find out like through supernatural means that he didn't. But even if it was left up as a mystery, like by the end of the movie, when like they're putting him in the uh, it's like their job, they have to kill this man. And nobody else has had the experience that the four guards have had that like they care about him and they know they even know that he's innocent but it's like they have to kill him in front of this group of people who fucking hate his guts because they don't know him and it's just so fucking sad and then on top of it when they're putting the mask over his face and he's like please don't put the mask on boss don't put me in the dark it's just it's so fucking sad (laughs) it's just like unbelievably emotional and then just Tom Tom Hanks shakes his hand in front of everybody, just like, oh, uh, like Barry Pepper's crying, so and he's like, "Before you stand up, you better make sure you wipe your face." Yeah, I it. Yep. I just I had no idea. Like I knew the movie was a drama, and I knew it was going to be like kind of sentimental, but I did not expect the movie to be what it is. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk about the true villain of this movie? Percy. Percy Wetmore. Mm-hmm. Um, now, well, I didn't remember him being in it and rewatching it. The actor is Doug Hutchinson, mm-hmm. who for, for me, old school X-Files fan. Oh, he, he is, uh, tombs from the first season of X-Files. Is that the guy who stretches? The stretchy guy. Really? Creepy as shit in that show. And it continues here. So like once he's, you know, pretty quickly shows you he's going to be a villain i was like sons of bitches perfect casting because tombs is a monster you know what's funny is um we may have talked about it before but like even though it seems like something i would have really loved i never really got into the x-files back when it was on tv Mm -hmm. at some point years after the show had originally gone off the air i borrowed all the seasons from a friend and tried watching through the whole thing and i just kind of lost steam in like the third season and gave up for whatever reason it's like I like the idea of the show more than I actually enjoy watching the show, but it's funny because that show played in like the ballparks of things I like, you know, monsters and things. I remember borrowing from the library. They had like a series of like books for like younger readers where they were like adaptations of the uh, or like uh you know, like the, of the episodes. Uh-huh. And I read the like younger readers book of that episode where the dude stretches. That's why I knew who it was when you said tombs, even uh, though I love I've it. seen the episode, but don't remember the actual show oh, itself. Oh, amazing. But yeah, like if you had pulled the old, you know, word association on me and said Doug Hutchison, even mm-hmm. if I saw a picture of him, because I don't, I didn't know his name. I honestly, like he seems very familiar, but even when I looked up what he'd been in, like he's in Con Air, which maybe I would remember him for. He, I think he plays one of the guards in that or something. Oh, uh, he's apparently in Batman and Robin, which I've only seen once, and he was in Punisher Warzone, which I've only seen once. But like, he didn't have a ton of stuff on his IMDb, and as good as he is in this, as a piece of shit, mm-hmm. I was surprised that I like didn't know who he was, didn't really remember him from anything. But he has a very familiar face. 
Yeah, it's wild for me for now for the two roles for him to being a straight up monster villain. Yeah. But yeah, he plays an outright bastard in this. And I actually kind of like love the angle because it's just like it just adds to the story of this whole movie. But he's so evil. Yeah, he's just like a piece of shit just to be a piece of shit. Yeah, he's just like spoiled rich kid can get away with anything. What is it? Is his uncle is the governor, I think it is. So, yeah, somebody's like in the the government and yeah. you know, like one phone call and he's someone's yeah. nephew. Yeah, he could get any job he wants and just can't, you know, he's quote unquote untouchable. Yeah, but, but he's like hanging around this job that like he could have a much cushier one, but he just, it's like because he's a sadistic creep, he like wants to experience someone dying or yeah. it's oh. fucked up. Yeah, it's, it really is, but. It just adds to the whole movie because I think he just plays that part so well. Of course, like you said, Sam Rockwell's a great villain as well, and he gets his. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all around great cast. Um, compelling story. I love, I mean, when we talked about Shawshank, like that, again, one of the greatest movies of all time in our eyes. And just, but the story, I guess you could see as being like more mainstream, where this is. I feel like so much of this movie's left open to interpretation. Yeah. Just like overall meaning, the ending, just John Coffey himself. I mean, I feel like you could get into a lot of discussion about this movie. Yeah, it's funny, and I think it just speaks to the kind of person I am and my complete lack of faith in the classical ter- uh, way of like using the phrase, but... Mm-hmm. Like, I watched the movie, and I was just thinking of it as, like, this is, like, supernatural. It's, like, powers or whatever. And maybe it crossed my mind here and there, like, I don't know, is he supposed to be an angel or something mm-hmm. like that? But, mm-hmm. yeah, like, immediately after watching the movie and, like, reading anything about it online, people are, like, throwing in the Jesus and the, the God and, like, the Christian belief system. Right. And... I mean, even the you know, same initials and the whole thing, so. Oh, see, so didn't even think of that. Yeah. So... There's a bit of that, but I like, you know, it does it doesn't uh hold your hand either way to to direct you what it is. It's just like a kind of a bit of a wild happenstance and Yeah. Yeah, and so like after hearing how Shawshank did and you know, the fact that this one has Tom Hanks in a lead and the fact that Frank Darabont now had like a name for himself after the Shawshank Redemption had become like kind of a big deal. Uh, this movie had a budget of sixty million, and the box office was two hundred and eighty six point eight. Damn! So like this movie was definitely Holy accepted shit. by the mainstream, but like that even surprises me a little because the movie is, in addition to being long, it's like it's kind of weird. Like, oh yeah, that's what I mean. It's not like a mainstream. It doesn't play out like any kind of mainstream move. Three hundred million dollar movie to me. Yeah, like 85 to 90% of this movie is just as much of like a character-fueled drama as the Shawshank Redemption is. And then it's just every now and then it's like, oh yeah, this guy can like suck out whatever's ailing you and spit it into the air as like ashes. Right. And it's just, it's so weird. It's such a Stephen (laughs) King-ism to just have like this one little weird thing. Uh-huh. In his otherwise normal story. But, uh, yeah, I'm a little surprised that, uh, you know, the mainstream accepted it so much. Yeah. I mean, I am too. I don't feel like it gets talked about a ton. 
No, it definitely feels like it doesn't have the longevity that uh, Shawshank did. Right. But I don't know. I still think it's like very effective. It's just I wonder if it is the fact that, like I said, this one, at least to me, it played like a little more on the nose. Like we're trying to get the emotions out of you where Shawshank, it just feels so natural. It's just like. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words, yeah, but it just, I mean, it, it like works and what it is manages to like affect people in a certain way that, you know, producers and whatnot at the time probably didn't even expect. But this yeah. movie, it's like, if you read the script, we're setting out to make you fucking sad. Right. There is like melodrama that's on the page here for sure. Not yeah. even as a negative, but yeah, I, I see what you mean for sure. But oh man, even then, like. So I, I, you know, I'm watching the movie and it it opens with the, you know, the modern day with an old man who we learn is uh, older Tom Hanks character. And, you know, then it flashes back and I never thought about it or like tried to put two and two together. Like how many years had it been since the, the his days in the, uh, the green mile. But then at the end, they like hit you even more with the sci-fi and you're like, when John Coffey used his powers on me, it made me age like slower than other people are right. like live longer. And I'm 108 years old. And the movie ends with this weird existential question of like, I've watched everyone I've known die around me. And like, how many more years do I have? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's a like out of the blue fucking cool little sci-fi thing at the oh, end of totally. the movie too, which I really fucking loved. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. This is a bit of a sidetrack, but with this movie, I don't know if maybe I didn't research it, but I don't know if it came up while you were maybe doing notes, but there, I remember seeing an episode of a show. I want to say it's like the outer limits or something, or like, you know, not the twilight zone, but one of those kind of shows. Mm-hmm. Where it had a very similar story where it was like a guy in prison that could even like heal people. And over the course of the story, he like heals a bunch of inmates. And then towards the end, he's actually executed. And, but then at the end, all of those inmates that he had healed earlier now have that power and they bring him back to life at the end. Uh, I'm guessing this didn't come up at all, so I'll have to (laughs) to look into it. It it was funny because, you know, the Shawshank Redemption is now like a time-honored classic. There was, like, fucking details and minutia for days to read about it online and, like, special Uh features and and whatnot. Um, I have, like, two notes for this movie because there was just, like, nothing... You know, I could have written down a thousand things, but there was, like, nothing standout or, like, super interesting about it uh, that I read. And... I've watched about an hour of that special feature that I bought the Blu-ray for. I haven't had a chance to sit down and finish it, but um, uh, essentially, like, what I know about the origin of the movie is that um, Stephen King based, he took the name John Coffey from, like, a teacher at a school that he visited one time. He just liked the name, allegedly. Mm. This was, I guess this is, I don't know how long it is, but um, when this book originally or when this story was originally released he released it in segments instead of like putting it all in one book at the same time and he said that like part of the reason for wanting to try that as an experiment is like classically like you know back in the days like with hp lovecraft publishing stories or whatever 
writers would serialize things in like sci-fi magazines or even newspapers back in the day, like Edgar Allan Poe would have, you know, stories serialized in newspapers and he would get like paid by the chapter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King, A, wanted to try that. And B, he said that like people with his books, because they have like twist endings and like horror sci-fi premises and things, people have a tendency to like when they buy his book, they just immediately skip to the last chapter, like the last page to see what like the twist or whatever ending is. Who would do that? I don't know. But apparently that's a thing people do that he had heard about. And he was like, I want to put out a story and like make people actually go on the journey. So like no one can know what the end is until Hmm. like I put out the last part. So like however long this ended up being, it was like put out in segments but that's really all I know about it. I mean, if what you just described is true, like if that's an actual episode of something, that sounds awful fucking close to this. It like, is. I mean, it, I would be very scared for myself if I that was fever dreamed because I know I've, I've I could like see it in my mind's eye. But um, I mean, so this came out in uh, the novella, also called The Green Mile, came out in 1996. Like, I wonder if it's possible that, like, that was a pseudo-adaptation for, like, an anthology TV show. Like, what other anthology TV shows were there for that kind of thing? I can think of The Outer Limits and... Yeah, there's, like, Outer Limits, uh, Tales from the Crypt. It's, like, more horror, but uh, there was a show. It maybe lasted for, like, two seasons. I don't know exactly when, late 90s, early 2000s, called Perversions of Science, which was, like, a science fiction anthology show. Mm Mm-hmm. And some like noteworthy names directed episodes of it. Okay. Okay. I don't. I don't know what else though. Like that's you're gonna have to do some digging on that one because yeah. I'd love to know if that's real or if it's just like uh, something you conjured up in like a dream. Because <laughs> it sounds like so close to say that. Like, how would I have not read about that when I was writing my notes if that was such a coincidence? You know? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So I mean, clearly, I need to you know, restore my good name. So Millsy doesn't think I'm a crazy person. <laughs> Just, but yeah. I'm surprised. That I gotta, I, I gotta find it. this out. I gotta, I gotta find it. Yeah. No, but yeah, no, I didn't, didn't read anything about that. Yeah. The only notes I have are that Stephen King has called the green mile, the single most faithful adaptation of his work. And, uh, Shaquille O'Neal was originally offered the role of John Coffey, but turned it down. And oh, thank uh, God. Michael Clark Duncan attributes his hiring to Armageddon co-star Bruce Willis for introducing him to Frank Darabont. Oh, okay, Bruce. So that's all I got there. I like it. This is a, this is must see movie action for me. You know, I hi- highly recommend. Yeah. Highly recommend. I would have an easier time believing that somebody would not like this than if somebody were to say they don't like Shawshank for sure. just because for it sure. is very earnest and corny at times i mean it it worked fully on me so i'm not judging it but yeah like i i I wouldn't begrudge someone saying this isn't their kind of movie or whatever but for sure yeah for a first time watch i i definitely was not expecting to like it nearly as much as i did (laughs) that's awesome but i also really had no concept of what the movie was right that's a good time right there yeah but yeah great cast i mean uh, David Morse has uh, like the second in command prison guard. He, I feel like he mm-hmm. usually plays like assholes and like evil yep. people, but he was really good in this. As, yeah, like, he was. 
a likable character. I was actually expecting him to be evil just because he was in it. Yeah. He's just got that kind of like resting sinister face. Yeah, he does. James Cromwell as the warden was good. Uh, yep. I mean, Barry Pepper, I like. Oh, he's good. Yeah. Sam Rockwell, like I said, I had no idea he was going to be in this. When he popped up, I was like, oh, okay. I feel like uh, Tom Hanks's wife, who's like a that lady, that lady actor, I feel like she's been the mom in quite a few things. Was she the mom in... Uh... Beethoven? Is that what I'm thinking of? She was the mom in Beethoven. Okay. Uh, she's also in Jumanji, Jerry Maguire, Cheaper by the Dozen, Rain Man. Uh, yeah, I'm, th- I'm probably thinking like Jumanji for sure. Yeah, so she's just felt like she feels like one of those like quintessential moms. But uh, Gary Sinise pops up for one scene. Oh, that's true. William yep. Sadler is in there a little bit, and then uh, Harry Dean Stanton is one of the the inmates. Mm-hmm. Always love seeing him pop up and stuff. So yeah, Always. hell of a cast. Yeah. Oh. It's a good time, and I think uh, makes you think. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's a good one. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk these posties. You know, it kills me knowing that Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile have both had the Drew Struzan treatment after the fact. Yes. That, not to say that these are bad posters, but it, it just kills me to think that two of the three of these have Drew Struzans and we're not going to talk about either of them right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, just, <laughs> that's just like a... a a sad subsection of Hollywood history is how they, they've uh, treated posters over yeah. the years, and especially that man. So starting off with Stand By Me. Let me just get out the flamethrower real quick. <laughs> uh, I've, I don't think I've ever seen this poster before. Same. Every poster that I can imagine or image I've ever seen for the movie is like the chest up of the four kids, like hanging out, like leaning on one another, like. There are versions of that with the bottom half of this poster where it's just like four tiny silhouettes in front of a blue river with mountains in the background. But I've never seen this version where the top half of the poster is just nothing with a random quote from the movie that has nothing to do with anything. The worst quote they could have picked. This makes me actually upset because I really like this poster. I've also never seen it. I can't even really really think of like what the posters I have seen for this movie. I don't feel like I've ever seen this. I actually love the artwork. I think it's great. Yeah, the bottom half of the posters. I mean, even if you just got rid of the text and just the the top was empty, I mean, that's better than what they did. I'll take that all day. This quote is taking such a hot dump onto this poster. <laughs> Pisses me off. Yeah, so they pulled a line from Jerry O'Connell's character from the movie, and it says in big letters, the top half of the poster, if I could only have one food to eat for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pez. Cherry flavor Pez. No question about it. Like, why would they choose that to advertise I mean, the film? I'm a throw and through Pez lover myself. That is the absolute last thing you put on any poster. <laughs> it's just a it's weird, terrible. Weird choice. Whose choice was that? Because it's awful. Yeah. I. I mean, the poster itself almost looks to me more like this would be like a Mondo poster made 30, 40 years after the movie came out by like fans for fans because Good the point. people who would be observing it already know and love the movie. Like I'm surprised it's as graphic and simple as it is. Yep. 
you know, those four kids at the time, they were just kids. They weren't like the big names. Like, I don't know how popular Corey Feldman was at the time or River Phoenix because they were like kind of child stars. But I would still think you'd put some of their faces on here. I don't know. <laughs> this this feels like a like a meme generator. <laughs> like like you could find it's online and just put any quote in there. It's like. Like I would put like want to see a dead body that's like that to me that's a better quote than the shit about Pez but yeah I mean anything works like I don't know if we've ever even said like oh this poster's really in in need of a subtitle like this one does and it's just got to be something better than the shit about the Pez yeah I don't know it is a baffling decision like yeah. aesthetically like the imagery as an advertising tool. I don't know who, yeah. who said yes to this. Totally. And the rest of it's like so strong and it stands out. The title stands out so well. The image is great. Yeah. But just God almighty to say ruined by a terrible, terrible quote. You know, quote. I got to be honest. What you said a minute ago, if instead of that quote, it was a it was quotation marks and it said, do you want to see a dead body? Mm-hmm. There's your fucking poster. I mean, I mean. That yeah. is at least intriguing and like gives the impression like oh like who's who wants to see this movie because they mentioned Pez. But if it's like <laughs> right. four people a in mystery. the wilderness, it's called Stand By Me, and it says, Do you want to see a dead body? Like that's at least intriguing. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, that's I don't know. It's a weird decision it's, on I this one. Can't, I I have a when you sent this and I pulled up, I could not believe it. Yeah, I mean, if you Google, like, Stand By Me movie poster, every other one you see is, like, a group shot of the four kids. Sometimes it's them, like, in the sky above the bottom half of this image, but mm-hmm. it, you always see the kids. It's This is this is a bizarre one. Yeah, very. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, I mean, it's, it's a very nice image. Uh, this is one of the few instances where I like the tagline. On a poster, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. Yeah, that's not bad. And it's not like they, they stuck in a second one for no reason underneath the title like so many posters do. So Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really tell you. I would say just about the poster. I don't think it's ugly or bad even. Just it doesn't really give you much. Yeah, I mean, there's something to what I quoted earlier as like people say that part of the reason the movie didn't do well is because it had like a confusing title and or advertising campaign because this really you would have no idea this is a prison film you don't know who that is standing in the rain so if you don't stop and like read the names and at the time was tim robbins even a name you would know i don't know right same like i feel like morgan freeman you know he had been around acting for a while but i would almost bet that this was like the movie that set him on his path to becoming the morgan freeman we all know and love now Mm. I would say it's this, and then he became, like, universally known when he did the narration for, was it, like, the March of the Penguins or something? Oh, Seven, too, I think, would do it. Mm, yeah. That was a big one. But, yeah, between those three, for sure. I just feel like he, like, as, like, the guy who does narration, which he does in this, mm-hmm. I think he became, like, almost a living meme <laughs> when he oh. did the, the voiceover for the March of the Penguins. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, I'd say I'd go with you on that. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good image. Um, it's another one kind of like the Stand by Me poster, where once you've seen the movie, I feel like it works better than as an advertising tool. Totally. 
And, you know, it just sucks that I know that the Drew Struzan imagery exists. So And it's so good. Yeah, I'm always going to be comparing it to that, but... Yeah. Not bad, but not not great as an ad mm-hmm. tool, advertising tool. And then the Green Mile, I mean, as great as the movie is, could this be any more boring? It's just a big face right. of the lead actor. Yeah. This is just like Tom Hanks sells tickets. Yeah, which maybe after, you know, the uh, the Shawshank Redemption situation, he was like, this time I'm going to make the poster really obvious, like, right. why you want to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of brown. Yeah. Yeah, It's is it a drawing? You know, when I zoomed in on it, I'm almost wondering if it's like a painting or something as well, or they, like, manipulated the photo to, like... They definitely did something to it. Yeah. But... Like, is it even possible this is a Drew Struzan? We just don't know it because it's so simple nah. and it's just like nah. such a a good illustration of a face. But yeah, <laughs> I, d- I definitely think there's something going on with it aside from it just being a straight up photo. Right. I mean, it's fine. It's dull. It's like I said, it's just like this is. Yeah, it's very brown and cream. It's, it's a little better than your very standard like poster made by committee, but not by much. Yeah. It does have a tagline that's very small over to the side. Paul Edgecombe didn't believe in miracles until the day he met one. Eh. Which, I mean, yes, I guess I could see why they picked that, but it's not not all that enticing, I guess. It's just really tiny. It's like little black text over on the side of an already kind Mm -hmm. of dreary poster, so it doesn't like stick out very much. It almost feels like, is it even doing any good being there? Like how many people take the time to read that because it's so small off to the side. Yeah. It's like the movie's called the green mile and there's just no green in the thing. Yeah. When, when the color itself has significance. Mm-hmm. No, it's not just a word. Actually, that color is important, but yeah, who knows? Millsy baby, break it down for the people. Uh, as good as the movies are, I'm a little disappointed by this poster lineup. Um, yeah. Gosh, stand by me. If it wasn't for the, quote at the top uh i mean this isn't awful it's it's gonna uh, that it's the the quote is just so baffling because of the quote ruins it this is gonna be uh two leeches stuck to will wheaton's nutsack i knew it i was like i had my fingers and toes crossed over there i was like (laughs) leeches on the nuts leeches on the nuts i knew it Okay. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is good image, like the tagline. Like, it's a fine poster. Not the best advertising tool in the world. Not super indicative of the actual movie itself. Uh, I like it enough. It's going to be um, three chess pieces carved by Andy Dufresne over the course of 20 years. (laughs) Nice. And uh, the Green Mile, it's ugly color scheme it's just a giant head i don't like the placement of the tag of the yeah, the tagline or the tagline itself really uh this is gonna be two two uh mouse turds from mr jingles mm. all right well played as always i am i like far off on anything here like, no no spot on yeah i mean none of these are like a one dreadful terrible hellraiser poster so yeah but uh, nothing above average i would say yeah nothing i would want to like hang up 
in my movie room. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say no to having that Shawshank Redemption, but given the choice, give me the Drew Struzan illustration. That's what I mean. I would, if that was the option, I would totally, because I love the movie so much, I would totally just get the Drew Struzan one. Yeah. All right. Uh, Barbara O'Byrne time. Barbara O'Byrne. I'm locked and loaded. Hit it. Shawshank Redemption, obviously one of the greatest movies ever made, probably. Uh, it's going to be the buy. Absolutely mm-hmm. love it. I feel like I could just watch it over and over, just like everybody else has on cable over the past 25 years. Preach. Yeah, The Green Mile, super surprising how good it was. I, You know, it, it had good cast and, you know, based on Stephen King and Frank Darabont directed it. Like, I don't know if I ever expected it to be bad. I just... It seemed like such a weird mishmash of things that I didn't expect it to be as good as it is. But goddamn, that movie is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be my borrow. And then Stand By Me, it's like a good movie. Nothing wrong with it. But um, like in this lineup, it pales in comparison to the other two for me personally. Because like I said, I don't have that nostalgic connection. And I don't think it's like nearly as good as uh, The Green Mile is, even though I just saw that for the first time. So... Stand by me, good movie. I own it. I like it, but uh, that's going to be my burn because something's got to go. Something's got to give, Millsy. Um, I'll just come out and say, uh, total agreement on all fronts here. Um, yeah. clearly buying Shawshank Redemption. I would love to have a nice version of that myself, potentially in a book of some kind. <laughs> um. Green Mile, again, was a fantastic rewatch for me after so many years and was, you know, definitely kept me thinking quite a bit, even after, you know, the credits rolled. I think Stand By Me is a great movie, but it just doesn't stack up to the other two. So in the uh, spirit of this thing of ours, something does, in fact, have to go. And Stand By Me, I would recommend all day, but it doesn't... uh, doesn't hit me right in the field units just like uh the other two mm-hmm. so it's interesting burn. like in this lineup because two of the three are by frank darabont and we talked about how much of like an auteur and like a perfectionist he is like two of the three movies we talked like they're all good movies but two mm-hmm. of the three we talked about are just like finely tuned perfect ideal versions of what they are mm-hmm. and then stand yep. by me is like a really good movie but it just feels like <laughs> chintzy compared to the other two because it's like a normal movie it's not this thing that was like crafted by an artisanal filmmaker you know (laughs) yeah like rob reiner did a good job with good subject matter and a good cast and everything but uh it's like that's a normal movie and the other two are like abnormal in Mm -hmm. a good way (laughs) i don't know high five to that buddy (sighs) yeah well mills you know what time it is yeah uh that was the start of season eight. I can't believe we're on season eight. Let's find out how we're going to continue. Please. Uh, Millsy, how many potential episode trifectas do we have? Uh, at the current time, we have 236 because we haven't added our uh, sheep trio yet. Mm, okay. It's 236. <laughs> Millsy. Yes. Millsy. Yes. Ten. <laughs> Not the first time we've had early numbers. All right. (laughs) For the second episode of season eight, we are going to be talking the theme Lady Killer MD. (laughs) What a name. 
Yeah, it's pretty on the nose, but you have to know what MD is. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I love it. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty excited about this one. Like, numerous times I've looked over the list and been like, I'd like to do that one. I've not seen any of these. Really? Yeah. I've seen two of the three, but uh, I would Mm -hmm. say two of the three are, like, seminal For sure. Yeah, I know. You know, oddly enough, this will only make sense to us, but the one, the episode above this, uh-huh. I've seen all of those uh, multiple I've, times. I've only seen one of those, but it's funny. I did catch that out of the corner of my eye, and I was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, did I fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, none of that's going to make sense to anybody, but that's just right. for you and me. This, this is for us, but yes. <laughs> But yeah, the these seminal two from Lady Killer MD just are in that that list of yeah, those are probably must see movies. I just haven't gotten around to it till now. Yeah, it's all about to change for you. Here we go. You know, triple threat. Just keeping the keeping the dream alive. <laughs> Put that on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keeping the dream alive. All right. Uh, that's gonna do it for the uh, first episode of season eight. Mm-hmm. Next time we are talking Lady Killer MD. Until then, my name is Ryan Miller. I'm Joe Axberger. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy. Be happy. Be happy. Be happy.